Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, why millions of women are not taking advantage of life-changing treatment during the menopause. Menopause is the gateway to the second half of life, and I think we should be able to spend the time with our patients to give them the opportunity to optimize their health. And the internetdomain.org is in the process of being sold for over a billion dollars. What does it mean for the future of the internet? The main problem is, is that this all seems to have been done slightly in the shadows, and that sort of goes against the culture of how the internet's been governed in the past, where the norm has been to be as transparent as you possibly can. And I think this this is definitely different from that. But first, China is taking steps to remove foreign technology from its state offices. It's a striking physical manifestation of the country's growing desire for technological independence. Hal Hudson is the Economist Asia Technology correspondent, and he joins me down the line from. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, hold on a second, Hal. You're here in the studio in London. How are you doing? Hi, Ken. Yes, this is incredible. I know. So nice to have you, Hal. What is going on? Well, a couple of days ago, the Financial Times,、uh, their Beijing technology correspondent Yuan Yang, reported a source story saying that the Chinese government has ordered all Western computing technology out of its state offices. This amounts to about thirty million machines being removed from, you know, desktop computers and servers that do various things for government entities. It's not clear exactly, you know, what things the computers are being re- taken away from, but essentially, it's China's version of America saying no Huawei. It's a bit of reciprocal action for the first time here. Okay, and how significant is this? Could be a pretty big deal. It's hard to say exactly. You know, for companies like Microsoft and Dell and IBM, which all sell into China, and China is a huge market, if they really mean it, and if there's no sort of way around it, and bear in mind that there have been ways around it for Huawei in the reciprocal case, but if if the government really means it, and if there's no way around it, then you know those companies are going to lose some sales, and that's going to be a big deal. And what kind of ways would you get around it? If you're Microsoft, you could establish a kind of some sort of JV on the mainland that operates under Chinese government standards, and you could convince the Chinese government that hey, we're legit. You can have us, and you know maybe you would offer inspections of your assembly plants to the Chinese government. You would essentially. Open yourself up to Chinese government governance, but this is all symbolism. It's really a tit for tat, so they wouldn't even be willing to entertain that. They want to make it hurt. Yes, yes, I think they do want to make it hurt. But you kind of have to present it, just as America has presented the attack on Huawei. You present it as a national security issue. There are, you know, it's you can't really dismiss national security concerns when you're talking about this. It's always possible that foreign computing equipment could be a vector for some kind of cyber attack. But you get into murky waters very fast. 
I've got a question for you. How do you make a computer without an Intel processor? This is the most interesting part of it. The answer is that you get TSMC, which is a Taiwanese chip making company, to build a design of non-American origin. Um, of an x86 processor. Good luck with that. Well, it doesn't have to be x86. But, you know, clearly x86 is a monopoly for the desktop, right? And it also means you can't have Windows. So like the entire desktop computing ecosystem for the Chinese government currently uses is x86 and Windows. So all of their apps that the government municipalities use. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. They're supposed to be doing this thing. 30% of the computer is going to be replaced in 2020, 50% in um, 2021, and the final 20% in 2022. Is this number of computers or components in a computer? It's number of computers. And, you know, right now, I'm sure that Lenovo, which is a Chinese computer manufacturer, I'm sure they have a big share of that market. But Lenovo just uses Intel chips. There's really no other option for uh, chips that will run Windows. And so, you know, it's not clear if the Chinese government is going to move to Linux. That would be kind of crazy. I know a lot of open source nerds would be very excited about that. But it's kind of infeasible to imagine them doing it in three years' time. However, if anyone has a shot at it, it's the Chinese government. They are pretty amazing at forcing through like difficult things. But this sounds mostly like a threat. Yeah, I mean, I think they'll, they'll try and do it. You know, this was not something that was publicly announced either. You've got to remember the FT reported it out and it's come from consultants who are working with these companies who have been talking to the FT. So the sourcing is like it's not the Chinese government making a big announcement saying we are going to cut American stuff out of our supply chain. It's the Chinese government just quietly doing something and the FT finding out about it. So it's going to be hard to implement, but it's going to be quite draconian for American technology companies. Yeah, it is a closer alignment with the companies that – China wants to continue using. So say Intel, like it might just be impossible to get away from Intel over the course of three years. But what might end up happening is Intel offers guarantees that these chips for these purposes are coming from these factories. Maybe they're outside America. You know, maybe Intel has transferred its IP before to AMD back in the 80s. And so maybe China can force them to do that again. That would be insane. But we've already seen that happen with ARM, which is Intel's equivalent in mobile phones. There's now ARM China. So Maybe there'll be Intel China. I don't know. I'm completely hypothesizing here. We don't actually have that many details at this point in time. But it sounds fascinating and something that's going to be a running story. I think it will be a running story, yes. Hal Hudson, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Next up, one in every two human beings will go through the menopause. And yet, it is little talked about and its symptoms are widely misunderstood. Although hormonal therapies are effective and available, doctors are reluctant to prescribe them. And the number of women taking them has declined sharply in recent years. Natasha Loder is The Economist healthcare editor, and she's here to talk with me about it now. Hello, Natasha. Hi, Ken. Natasha, let's start with the most fundamental question. What is the menopause? So the menopause happens around the middle of a woman's life, on average, of the age of 51. And it's when the ovaries stop producing hormones like estrogen and progesterone and your periods stop. Between 75 and 85 percent of women in Western countries have symptoms. I would say something like about 25 percent of women have symptoms that are severe enough that they would probably need to think about doing something about them. And what are the symptoms? Most commonly, you get things like hot flashes and night sweats. Also, you might get insomnia, mood swings. You might 
become depressed. You can equally have aches and pains, anxiety, but there are also a range of longer-term health consequences of the menopause, which are really not so well-known at all. And I spoke to Susan Davis. Uh, she's an endocrinologist at Monash University in Australia and also president of the International Menopause Society. When I called her, it was a hot summer evening, and so if you can hear cicadas in the background, that's why. So at menopause, when oestrogen levels fall, women start losing bone. This sets them up for a high risk of osteoporosis and fragility fracture in later life. In addition, loss of the oestrogen effects on not just the vaginal tissue, but also the bladder neck. So women are more likely to get urge incontinence, which means having to rush to the toilet, and vaginal dryness and soreness so that sexual activity becomes very uncomfortable or even painful. Cholesterol levels go up and women progressively become at increased risk of cardiovascular disease and of developing type 2 diabetes. So those are serious, potentially life-limiting conditions that are not commonly associated with menopause. Natasha, what are the treatments that are available? A lot of women will certainly turn to complementary therapies, uh, supplements to deal with the symptoms. But, you know, if you really want to have an impact on things like bone loss or risk of cardiovascular events, you really need to be taking supplemental hormones. So do a lot of women take them? Is it common? 20 years ago, hormone replacement therapy was just quite simply the standard of care for women who were going through menopause and had symptoms. But there was a really pivotal moment in 2002 when a big health study on women came out and it essentially concluded that the risks of taking HRT greatly outweighed the benefits. And that was really a huge surprise. And at that time, we saw you know, big dips across the world in the numbers of women who were taking HRT. And we know that in America, it was about a 79% drop. We know in Europe, it was probably about 40%. Those numbers have never really recovered. That's a big shift. It is. But the problem was the findings were not actually correct and were overturned within a few years. Instead of recruiting healthy women who were in their late 40s and early 50s, they recruited slightly older women. And the median age of women in those studies was actually 63. And making matters worse, these recruits were actually also already unhealthy. 70% were overweight, half were obese, 50% were current or past smokers. This gave a distorted picture of what HRT can do for healthy women when they start it close to menopause. And sure enough, when the data was reanalyzed, they found a completely different result. If you started on HRT between the ages of 50 to 59, you were actually 31% less likely to die while you were on HRT. So this is, this is big. But I've also heard that taking HRT increases the risk of breast cancer? So this is another really interesting question. There was a paper recently in The Lancet that seemed to sort of imply that it raised breast cancer risk by a huge amount. And actually, there's quite some scientific debate about the extent to which it does raise breast cancer risk. Yes, it's possible, but it's probably quite small. It's probably about the same as being overweight. Now, if you've had breast cancer before, or if you're at higher risk of breast cancer, then this is something you would need to discuss with your doctor. So there is a caveat that, you know, HRT is not suitable for everyone. The problem is, is that doctors 
have not really come to terms with all the information that's out there about HRT today. Um, you know, women are scared and they find it quite difficult to get their heads around the science as well. And so I asked Susan Davis to lay out what we know now about the risks versus the benefits of hormone therapy. For the individual woman, if there is an increased risk of breast cancer of HRT, and I say if, it is so small that we're arguing about it. If it was big, like smoking and lung cancer, we wouldn't be having these debates. For the majority of women, the benefits in the first 10 years of menopause outweigh the risks. And that's because you have to weigh up any potential risk of breast cancer, and I say potential, against the benefits of protecting against bone loss and subsequent fracture in later life. Diabetes risks are reduced with hormone therapy. There's a reduced risk of colon cancer. There's a reduced risk of uterine cancer with combined hormone therapy. And then there are all the benefits of actually quality of life, improvement in sleep, reduction in symptoms. So there has to be a multidimensional assessment for each woman. A huge disservice has been done to women over the last decade of fear-mongering about HRT. Women are out there suffering and losing true quality life years. Because there is a window of opportunity, isn't there? It's not like women who are going through menopause can just wait for there to be better information available. There's a, a sort of a period within which they can decide or not to go on HRT. So the evidence would suggest that if you want to protect the cardiovascular system and get benefits... The sooner one takes hormone therapy after menopause, the more likely a woman is to gain a benefit. And that would certainly also apply to bone health. I'm seeing women now in their 60s with fractures because they haven't taken HRT when they were in their 40s and 50s when they went through menopause. What do we need to do, Susan, to make sure that more women actually have access to HRT? Because it kind of requires quite individual attention to be paid to them by their doctors. And sometimes doctors are pretty busy, aren't they? Women need to be able to access credible evidence-based information so they can make a decision. And then we need to take the time as doctors to listen to our patients and understand their symptoms and evaluate their risks. Menopause is the gateway to the second half of life. Health at menopause predicts the second half of life. And I think we should be able to spend the time with our patients to give them the opportunity to optimise their health at midlife and in their later years. And our thanks to Susan Davis of Monash University and the International Menopause Society and to Natasha Loder, our healthcare editor. You can read more stories like this in the Science and Technology section of The Economist. And you can also subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radiooffer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. And finally, 
One of the vital components of the Internet is unexpectedly in the process of being sold for over a billion dollars. The Internet Society is a nonprofit group that runs the .org domain, as in wikipedia.org or amnesty.org. And ISOC plans to sell the .org registry to a private equity firm. Tim Cross is the Economist Technology Editor, and he's here to talk about it. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, let's start by talking about what's going on. The websites that you see, like economist.com or wikipedia.org or whatever it is, uh, when you want to register that website, there is a sort of whole infrastructure of NGOs and voluntary bodies and so on that administer the system and decide who gets to have what name. And what's happening is that the body uh, in charge of part of that system, the part that relates to websites that end in .org, uh, is putting the rights to manage that, I suppose, up for sale and people are not happy. So let's look at all the different institutions that sort of run the internet domain name system. There's ICANN. Which stands for the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. And they oversee the whole kit and caboodle of all the different registrars that offer competition to sell the different domains. That's right, yeah. Okay. Then we have the Internet Society, which was founded in the 1990s. And they were created by some of the Internet's founding fathers for the purpose of sort of giving Internet governance a home. Yeah. So back in the day and still to an extent now, the Internet was really run sort of in an ad hoc way just by engineers talking to other engineers and saying, hey, we'll connect to your network if you connect to ours. And the Internet Society was sort of created as a a sort of formal official home for those sort of processes. So in 2002, ICANN gave the Internet Society the rights to run the .org database, which they do through something called PIR, the Public Interest Registry. It does what it says on the tin. It's meant to be for nonprofits, therefore public interest. And there's a lot of money in it. If you sell a domain name for $10 a year and you've got 10 million domains, you get $100 million. And so the Internet Society gets revenue of about $40 million a year for kind of doing very little. Now, the private equity firm, Ethos Capital, says that they're going to maintain the pricing increase strategy that the predecessor organization, ISOC and PIR, had done, which was not very rapacious. However, we don't really know if that's going to last. And one reasonable question might be, well, why would you expect it to? Because Ethos Capital is a for-profit private equity firm that exists, we presume, to earn a return for its investors. Yeah, and a lot of people are really troubled about what's going on. So I went to speak to Andrew Sullivan, the president and CEO of the Internet Society to see what he had to say about it. I started by asking him why the society decided to sell .org. Well, we, because we got a, a bid that was advantageous to us and that we thought was good for everybody else as well. I mean, we took seriously and, and I think still do take seriously the public benefit portion of that mission. But we were also sort of dependent on the income. And one of the problems in the registry business is that because it needs investment right now, because we need new services and so on in order to make these businesses healthy, in order to make sure that the registries continue in a healthy way, uh, we were not really able to invest in it that proper way. So when did uh, the buyer of .org, Ethos Capital, contact you? In September. So about a month and a half. Well, it was re really closer to two months. Okay. So did you go out to an auction? Well, we had been pro uh, approached before by various people. We had consistently rejected those things because we didn't think they were advantageous. They weren't advantageous for us. They weren't good for PIR. They weren't good for org registrants in various ways. We didn't think they were good for the internet. In this case, we had somebody come to us with a, a proposal that uh, involved significant investment in PIR that had um, plans about an advisory council and so on. So we 
we thought, oh, this is a different model. But we also felt that we had these other people who had approached us before. So we talked to them and said, well, we have another thing. Do you want to talk to us? And some of them did. And so, um. But you didn't have an open bid. Well, we didn't have an open bid because the, uh, the buyer who approached us said they weren't interested in that. And in that case, we would have missed the opportunity. The ISOC has, has fought for transparency in its practices for years. It's strange that now when you had to do something with this asset that you had, you did it in effect behind closed doors rather than with an open process where the community, the internet community that you were founded on and founded to support could weigh in. The way that we did this is part of the way that the governance model of the Internet Society is designed. We have a board of trustees. Those trustees are picked by our community, and they are entrusted with the decision-making power for this. Tell me about Ethos. Who are the investors behind it? Well, the investors behind it are not um, public right now. There but, are some- But you must know because you sold it to them. So the investors behind Ethos, uh, some of them I know and some of them I don't. So it could be Saudi money and Russian money. We have undertakings by Ethos that these are all U.S. investors and that they are all U.S. So, investors. So you don't know who they are, though? Uh, we know who some of them are, and we know who the lead investors are. Uh, some of the lead investors are not willing to be public about this. Some of them have been public. Let's talk about the future.org and how the new ownership might shape that. I think that the new ownership wants to invest in this community. I think that that's where they think their customers are. It's reasonably normal that for-profit industries sell to not-for-profits. There's lots of um, businesses that are based around that. And I think that's what Ethos is trying to do. Does ICANN need to approve the sale? Yes, ICANN does. What's its time frame? Do you know? The contractual um, rules about this, we send them uh, notice about it. They have 30 days to respond to that. They can ask questions. And then there's a back and forth each time the, the clock starts for another 30 days. And um, how many days? What's the day now unless they ask more and for more? Uh, they are going to ask for more information. They published a, a note about that to that effect today. So it's at least another month away. Critics say that ISOC's moral authority has somehow been damaged by this, that you sort of race to embrace the lucre when it was offered. How do you respond to that? I understand that people uh, feel disappointed, but I, I still believe that what we were doing was the correct thing for the simple reasons that I think this is good for .org registrants. I think it's good for PIR. And I think it permits us to have the authority and the basis on which we can fight for the internet. There's an additional issue here, and that is that the Internet Society has been dependent on the money from .org for many years, and that meant that we were bound up with one piece of the Internet industry. And what this does is it puts us apart from that so that there isn't any part of the Internet industry where we are somehow implicated, uh, which gets us out of a conflict of interest. Okay. What about the fact that the part of the team that's going to be taking it on has the former CEO of ICANN involved with it? So the former CEO of ICANN is Fadi Shahadi, and he left there three years ago and change. And he's been an advisor to Ethos on this. Ethos is really, in many ways, uh, you know, it's a new company. It contains or, or its principal is somebody who has been invested in this space before. So it's not completely new. But, you know, after three years, any cooling off period is probably over. Now, I get it. People think, oh, this is, you know, more of the standard insider stuff that happens. And there has been a history of that around the domain name industry. There's no question. But I think the, the fact is that there's a period of time that has passed. And if you can't ever ask the people who are on the inside for advice, it becomes very hard to understand how anybody new would ever enter the industry. So, Tim, back to us. What do you make of it? He was trying in that interview very hard to be reassuring, but I'm not sure that it will necessarily succeed because I think the main problem, this is a point you pressed him on, 
is that this all seems to have been done slightly in the shadows. And all we really have to go on is his reassurances that everything will turn out okay. But I think that sort of goes against the culture of how the internet's been governed in the past, where the norm has certainly been to be as transparent as you possibly can. And I think this this is definitely different from that. In fact, they created ISOC and ICANN for the purpose of having an institution to show process and to show transparency. And you brought up ICANN again, and that's the other interesting wrinkle, because the same day we recorded that interview, ICANN published a letter, an open letter about the sale. And it's written in, in sort of slightly bland coded language, but it, it seems that uh, ICANN itself is a little bit worried about what's going on. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.